0: Well, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> We're going to have communion with sourdough bread pieces. That's right. So, hey, we want to jump in because we are getting a little later to start. We want to maximize the time, and um, so we forwent the formal introductions. We just said, let's just jump in. But I do want to introduce <clears throat> two pastor friends of mine who embody the topic. Um, they live the very thing that we're talking about this morning, and we want this to be a shared opportunity to learn together. And so this is Pastor Ben Dixon from Northwest Church up in Federal Way, Washington. And um uh, Ben produces more content on a daily basis than I do in months, so uh, just a great thinker, comes from the marketplace, has that just kind of well-rounded, fully-orbed kind of way of living on mission, so pastor's a very strong, vibrant church that pulsates with the life of the Spirit, so this is Ben, and then this is Pastor Phil Manginelli, who... who planted and pastors with his wife family, the Square Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And it is a booming church, reaching um, just this broad demographic of of ages and just vibrant in the life of the Spirit. And um, he's also on the front end of a sabbatical, so he's a little punchy right now. He's just kind of (laughs) like, when you start uncoiling the spring, you get a little loopy. So we're going to give him a pass, whatever comes out. But... uh, As well, a man of the Spirit and just hungers for revival and passionate about pursuing the heart of God. And so we want to talk about a very specific aspect in prayer. We don't want to just talk about how do we disciple people or my own personal prayer life, but what does it mean to be a praying church? Um, I grew up in a church where... A lot of the services Sunday night and midweek where you were just praying through at the altar. You know, you got anxiety? Pray till the peace comes. You know, you just kind of prayed through. But when I got to Beaverton Foursquare Church, um, I told the story last night where Pastor Ron mentioned that about God's in the house. And this is why he would say that and believe that. Because they had this weekly church-wide prayer meeting that had been going on for almost 30 years at that point. And so he firmly believed in what I embraced wholeheartedly and continue to lead in is that there's an undercurrent of the Holy Spirit's working that's producing all of this life that we see evidenced around us. But that undercurrent of the Spirit's working is sustained through a praying people. So there's a church on its knees in prayer contending that this cannot be might and cannot be power, but it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. So we... Continued that in some different formats and ways and um, one of the things that we would lead in as a regular part of our congregational life is how do we just come together for two hours when there's hundreds of us coming together with no agenda other than to seek God together? How do we not prescript a time that has a run sheet and all of that? We're just going to come and we're going to get on our knees and we're going to seek God And we're going to learn how to pray together as a people. So now that has to be a reflection outwardly, that corporate life of our inward life. But I think it goes back to two things for me foundationally, and I'm going to pass this off here. But that in the book of Acts, we see that the church was devoted to certain things. And that word devoted means these are of primary importance. They come to the forefront. These are, these are utmost. And so they were devoted to prayer. And prayer gets the most exhortation in the scripture about perseverance and tenacity and don't quit. Men ought to always pray and not give up. Um, Be devoted to prayer and continue in it. And there's just reference after reference about this sustainable, continual effort of being a praying people. Not just praying through a crisis and being done, but this is our way of living. This is foundational to what we believe about how Jesus moves and works among us. So when Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of... Um, would people find that contradictory if you ever read that passage in your church? If you read that and they go, where does that happen here? Um, I was talking to somebody a while back, and they said, our prayer room turned into a green room. And now that sounds so harsh, and it sounds so judgmental, and it's critiquing, and I don't mean mean it to sound like that, but there was something symbolic about a dedicated space that was set apart. And this isn't the church I came from, so don't don't think I'm don't don't try to guess. So, uh, but the point being that there was something visible to that congregation that said, "This this is a priority for us." I used to struggle. Um, we had almost eighty people on our full and part time staff, and technish, technical people the, the the you know the sound lighting graphics, stuff that you just, part of how we do ministry today. And I thought, and we don't have anybody on staff that they're praying as their ministry, like that we're paying, that we're saying we believe so much in that. So it began to be this conviction for me about how I thought about prayer. And so I had one of these crazy prayers. Remember when Joshua prayed Sun Sandstill? And so I had a couple crazy prayers. One is that we would one day have more money than we have vision for. Um, The other that was that we would have so many people wanting to serve in children's ministry that we would have to turn them away. That was the second one. Instead of just like, instead of just like, well, you got pants on, you qualify. Come on in, you know. It's kind of like we're desperate. Come on in here, you know. And um, you know that people would see the significance of that. And that was. But my third one is that our prayer night would be the biggest gathering of our week. Um, that was always. I, we never accomplished that. But I also feel like anything we can point to of the spirits working and moving among us in terms of how we were on mission in our city. But also the life that we experienced when we gathered together was connected directly to us being a praying people. I want to read one scripture and and I'll, I'll hand off here. But one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, would you teach us to pray? John taught his disciples and he said to them, when you pray, say these things. Now, the greatest man who ever lived, if we would all agree that would be Jesus, was preeminently a man of prayer. Just traced through his life. He was the greatest disciple maker in history, and he lived a life of prayer. So he modeled it in every scenario. You could go through the Gospels and look at all the different scenarios that he prayed before, during, or after, in. But 2,000 years ago, one of his disciples Engaged Jesus as he came from a time of prayer and having seen him do miracles, cast out demons, teach with authority, compassionately minister to hurting people, heal the sick. Out of all the things that you could ask Jesus, Jesus, would you teach us how to do deliverance? Would you teach us how to teach with authority like you did? The only time, the only record we have of a disciple asking Jesus to teach them about something was prayer. And the very request was revelatory in nature. The very fact that he said, would you teach us to pray, I think revealed the fact that they connected the dots between Jesus's prayer life and his public life. That what Jesus ministered under in terms of an open heaven, they connected the dots to his personal prayer life. That Jesus, if we we get your prayer life, we can have your public life. That if, if we get that this is the source, what if I prayed more than I prepared for my sermon, as much as I need to prepare for my sermon? What if, what if my life provoked those around me to say, it makes no sense unless God's in this, you must be praying. Could you teach me how to do that? And so what if the testimonies of our churches is, there's no human explanation for this. God's in this place. Would you teach us how to pray? And I think that's what Jesus modeled for us. It requires a dependence. We've heard it said desperate people pray. Maybe we're not desperate enough, but when it comes right down to it, it's foundational to what we really believe about God and our partnering with God in his mission. Do we believe that he's at work and prayer is primal and primary to that?
1: Good afternoon. Um, I was thinking about the prayer that he talked about. They they prayed, it's, uh, somebody has pants on. I was like, I want to pray that people are clothed and in their right and righteous mind. <laughs> I want to improve on that prayer a little bit. I'd prefer a little bit more than that. But thank you, Randy, for letting us share today. Hey, I, I was tasked with sharing uh, a couple things, two things I'd like to share with you. And the first is... I want to talk to you a little bit about some biblical convictions around a praying church. Some things that I think biblically are important if we are going to actually do this. And the second part of this is some practices. And these are, of course, things that I do or I'm doing imperfectly. I don't present myself as someone who is at the other end of the road on this. This is what we're trying, this is what we're hoping for. And so I plan to share. Uh, with you from that vantage point, and I'm honored to do so. But let me first by, uh, start by sharing, sharing with you uh, something that's really meaningful underneath all of this as to why it matters to me. Why does this matter to me? Why should it matter to you, this issue of prayer? 20 years ago, maybe 21 years ago, I was at an Alpha retreat, and if you've ever led Alpha or you've been a part of it, you know that we do the Holy Spirit Weekend. Does anybody remember the Holy Spirit Weekend? So during this time, like the agenda is that everybody that comes is baptized in the Holy Spirit. They speak with tongues and prophesy. There's a prophetic prayer time during, during that weekend at some point. Usually it's on the last day. That's when we would do it. And my pastor at the time, as they laid hands on me, he prophesied this verse that has stayed with me for years. at Psalm 2713. And the psalmist writes, I am still confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord... In the land of the living. When he said that verse to me, it became what we often call a life's verse. It marked my life, it marked my ministry. If there wasn't a heavy desire to pray, all of a sudden I begin to be under a burden. You know, Jesus said, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. There still is a burden of the Lord that we're to carry, and part of that is to co labor with him in the place of prayer. 13 times in the Gospels, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray with the Father, and that's only a few times that they mentioned it, and we know it was so normal, the disciples got accustomed to it, that the Gospels would mention it uh, 13 times. But as pastors, we ourselves, we walk through seasons of ministry where we hit a wall. I do, and I believe you do as well. You hit a wall, and natural strength is not enough. And we, we ought to walk this way in sort of a proactive way, not a reactive sense. And the only way that we do that is that we posture our heart and our lives and our churches in a place of prayer that when things happen, we don't look so disorganized as if we don't know what to do. And I believe that people of prayer, a praying church, postures itself in advance, not reactively, but proactively, because they continue to say this in every season. They say, I am still confident of this. This is what the psalmist is saying. He's probably Looking at all the things surrounding his life and seeking God in that time, and he stands on a promise, and that's the promise that should stay with us. I'm confident that I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I started to look at all these stories last night when we got in. The Bible is chock full of these experiences of suffering and disease and pain and difficulty And it always shows us, or at least a lot of times, where God shows up. God brings healing. God brings freedom. God brings deliverance. And that's not misplaced optimism. That's a faithful people who are believing for a God to do what they cannot do. And that happens because we pray. It doesn't happen because we're strong. It's not the strength of man. And these, of course, are our convictions. They have to be for us as pastors. But we want to lead our people into these convictions. We want to lead our people into these practices where it's not just theoretical. It's something that we are actually doing. But I started to think about the place of suffering and difficulty is is on this side, and the place of promise and fulfillment is on this side. And what is in the middle of those two places? The Bible in Jeremiah and Isaiah calls it the gap. The gap. It calls it the gap. God said to Jeremiah and Isaiah, I want you to stand in the gap. In fact, let me share with you a passage that should shake us a little bit. Ezekiel 2230, Yahweh said to the prophet, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. And he said, but I haven't found one. That should shake us right there. I haven't found one person that stands between that place of suffering and pain and that place of fulfillment and God's supernatural intervention. And so it is, it is upon us as a people, as a church, to stand in the gap and to contend for mercy for our hearts, for our homes, for our cities, for our country. I'm sure that all of us have felt quite helpless over these last couple of weeks And the culture, the secular culture, will make us think that prayer is nothing. They will make us think that prayer means nothing. And, friends, it is a lie. It is an absolute lie from hell to make us think that prayer does nothing. Prayer is not inactivity. Prayer is not wishful thinking. Prayer is powerful. When a people grab a hold of the promises of God, when we stand in the gap and we say, no, we believe God can do what we can't do, those people are not powerless and ineffective. Those people know exactly who they are, and they know exactly what God can do, and that's who we are. So we're people that, what, we stand in in the gap. What is the gap? What is this place that um, I'm talking about? The gap is the place between where we are and where we need to be. That's the gap. And we fill that place and we want to encourage our churches to do just that. I want to share with you two quick things. Well, they're not that quick, but they will be quicker than I originally planned. And the first one, I'm under watchful eyes. Praise the Lord. The first one I want to share with you is uh, biblical convictions about a praying church. I I think these actually need to be a part of, of the structure of what we believe if we're going to actually lead people into the messiness of corporate prayer. Corporate prayer, number one, releases supernatural breakthrough. Do you believe that today? It releases the power of God. Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 31, Peter and John get out of prison under duress. They're told, don't speak in the name of Jesus. They don't know how not to. So they basically just move on. They get together with their friends, and the first thing they do is pray. That's the first thing they do when they get out of jail. I would have gone to get a sandwich. I would have gone to do something. But they go back to a prayer meeting. It's the first thing that they did. And you know what it says that when they begin to pray? They pray for the supernatural hand of God that Signs, wonders, and miracles would show up in the name of Jesus. And the Bible says the place where they were praying was what? It was shaken. I call that a supernatural affirmation of God saying, this is exactly what you're supposed to do right now. I mean, I've never had an earthquake after a prayer meeting, but I think that would be a great Sunday if you ask me. Supernatural breakthrough is not normative for the average church, but it is normal for the praying church. This last week, uh, two weeks ago, I talked to our church about supernatural breakthrough from the book of Mark, chapter 7. And uh, we looked at the story of the Syrophoenician woman and how she hit a wall, her demonized daughter. There's literally nothing you can do when something like that comes upon you. What are you going to do? Well, she hears about Jesus, and she's a Gentile, but she comes anyways. She's a woman. She has no standing in that culture, but she comes anyways. And she falls at the feet of Jesus on her knees, and she cries out. And she presses in even when she doesn't get a favorable answer. And that's what, that's what was a great witness to us. So we talked about supernatural breakthrough. And I just asked our church. I said, how many of you need a supernatural breakthrough with your kids, your youth, and your young adults that have walked away from Jesus? We talk a lot about deconstruction. Let's talk about reconstruction. And part of that is prayer. Prayer. Part of that is prayer. It's not just understanding how they deconstructed. It's understanding how we lay hold of a promise, and we don't let go of our kids no matter what. I may not understand all that there is to say about deconstruction. Phil knows a lot more about that than I do. He really, he's got a good seminar on that. But I know that we can lay hold of God, and we can bring our kids back to the Lord. And part of that is prayer. Part of that is laying hold. And so we had 70 people in our church raise their hand and say, I'm going to fast and pray this Wednesday that God would bring our kids back to him. And here's what I know about being a good pastor. You don't know a lot of stuff, but what you've got to do is say, I'll fast with you and I'll pray with you. People come to me with their problems all the time. I don't have a degree in counseling. I don't know what to say. But if I'm going to be a good pastor, I'll say, I'll fast with you this week. I'll pray with you this week. We had a man 49 years old he got news that he had a coronary heart disease. He had a slight heart attack and he had three of his arteries blocked. At 49, he realized I need a triple bypass surgery. He wanted to drive all the way down to Bethel uh, to, to get prayer. And I said, you don't need to do that. Just come into our prayer room. I mean, I'm not trying to discourage his faith, you know, whatever, go to Bethel or where, all right, <laughs> whatever, do what you want to do. But anyhow, he, so I didn't want to discourage him, but my point is that we want to be that church, amen? we like, don't drive, you know, walk where you, where you need to go. It's not, I'm not dissing them, you, I understand, do what you're doing. So, but here's what I said to him, and I'm, I'm only sharing this with you as a pastor, I'm saying, I didn't, I didn't know the words of comfort to a man that's just a little bit older than me to say, it's going to be okay. I don't, I don't know what to say to him. He, he, obviously, he's, thank God for our medical advancements today and the fact that he could do that in two weeks. That's amazing. But I said, I'll fast with you this week until your surgery. I'll do that. See, that's, that's, that's when we believe God. We're saying, I'm going to stand in the gap with you. This is a praying church. I'll pray and fast with you until you have your surgery. Because I could see it in his eyes. He didn't know what to do. And he could see it in mine. Neither did I. But when I said, let's fast and pray, there was something that came into him, and said, you know what? That's right. That's right. Let's look to the Lord. Let's not look around. Let's not look within. Let's look up to God. That's a praying church. Corporate re- prayer releases supernatural breakthrough. Number two, real quickly, corporate prayer ripens the harvest. Look at Matthew nine thirty six. I won't go into it, but he says to his disciples, the harvests are plentiful, the workers are few. The next verse, pray earnestly to the Lord of the Harvest. My question for us as churches and pastors, when is the last time we led our church into a time of praying earnestly for the Lord of the Harvest to send forth laborers? What does it even mean to pray earnestly? The picture we have is James 5. Elijah prayed earnestly. Are we praying earnestly? Can God give us even more? And number three is corporate prayer renews the heart of the church. I'll say amen. I'm going to keep going. Corporate prayer releases the voice of God. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1 to 3, this is where the apostle Paul was given that word before his first missionary journey. They're fasting and they're praying and they're seeking God. It was a prayer meeting that birthed an apostolic movement. And this is what we recognize. We want all of that to happen, but it was birth. They heard the word of God in a prayer meeting. This is where we're going to hear God. He's going to give us our directives and we're going to fulfill the great commission number 5 and finally corporate prayer releases the gifts of the holy spirit First corinthians 14, 1 corinthians 14:1 pursue love and earnestly there's that word again earnestly desire spiritual gifts especially that you might prophesy i ask people this question all the time do you earnestly desire the gifts yeah there's a lot of misuse and abuse out there Th- that's fine those are not our bible we have, a, we have the scriptures that call us to earnestly desire. Do we earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit to be released in our people? Knowing that on the other end of a prophetic word perhaps could be the release of somebody's gifts, calling, or anything else that God wants to do. Perhaps the freedom of God would come on the other end of a word of knowledge. Well, I believe that it is, but what does it mean to desire the gifts? I think that has to do with prayer. I don't think it's just a, like, I really would like this to happen. I think as we begin to pray, something stirs up in our church, something stirs up in our hearts, and people all of a sudden want to see the supernatural of God among us. And uh, I think I still have a few minutes. Did I do all right? All right. 20 minutes. That's the hardest thing in the world to do. You understand? <laughs> I thought, man, that's a miracle in itself, Randy. <laughs> Specific practices of a praying church. Um, I want to be honest with you. Corporate prayer is messy. It's really messy. It's weird. Who prays? When do we say amen? How many people pray at the same time? You know, I, it gets weird, you know? And so everybody expresses their psychosis, it seems like. We don't really know what, you know, every, I could tell you all the good stuff. There's some hard things, too. Um, people t- say all kinds of political things out loud. You're like, you should have kept that to yourself. Um <laughs> We call it, I call it, uh, there's, there's praying, P-R-A-Y, and there's praying, P-R-E-Y. You know, there's two different kinds. You kind of find out where people are and that you're praying on, you know. It's like, oh, you want me to be different? Praying for the pastor right now. Um, but, you know, <laughs> Lord, we just pray that you would help. And, and we, if you live with a family, I, 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 we have two men, two women in our household we put all of our clothes in the same washer and dryer, and uh, every time I put on an undershirt, like I did today, there are these long hairs on my <laughs> undershirt, and you know that's. And and the thing is, is that when you put all of your stuff together, okay, sometimes it gets messy even in the midst of getting clean, and that's my point. Is that that's what corporate prayer is like to me. Sometimes it's like it feels messy but we're in the process of getting clean. And I think the Lord uses it in a way, and we've got to be convinced and convicted that something is going to happen out of this beautiful mess, because it's easy to not do it. When you get weird prophecies, and you go through the Trump thing with all the prophecies that didn't come to pass, and it's shameful, you know, honestly, And but you got to hold on to something is going to happen even out of this mess, and we've got to believe through it. So what do we do? We We do consistent weekly prayer gatherings, and we don't Relent on that. We, we do them before the service so that we call it pre-service prayer. I just call it extending the service. Just come early. Make it easy for people to come to prayer. Share the conviction as often as you can with your church. We believe in prayer. And even tell people it's a little messy. Just be honest about it. Hey, it's a little messy. It's kind of weird. Kneel, sit, stand. A lot of liturgy comes into this room. But why don't we just contend together and believe as family's messy, God's doing something powerful. And so consistent weekly prayer gatherings. If you don't have one, you need one. And if you start with one, then build up to more. Number two is pray during church, uh, during church services. Obviously, we need to do that. Stop the service. We had a, um, a national uh, tragedy, many of them, this last couple of weeks. Stop the service. Stop the show. Cut some things out. Shorten the sermon. Do what you got to do. It's what we did. You know, we ran over. We did what we had to But keep doing that. Respond in prayer, but also be proactive. And then share what comes with prayer. We share words of knowledge at our church. We do it um, after worship, and I do it after the sermon. We make room for it. You know, you sing the song, make room. you got to make room. Amen. you got to put it into your service. And so I saw Leslie Kegel do this all the time. You know, Dr. Kegel, he would, at the end of his service, he would say, somebody has this neck problem, and somebody has this, and somebody has that. And I remember telling uh, Dr. Kegel one time, this was a long time ago, I said, people need to know what you're doing. You know what he does? He prays before the service and he jots things down on a piece of paper. That's all he's doing. And then he's sharing what God gives him. What if we did that every single service that we have? And that's my conviction. When we talk about praying and preparing for the service, have a time to share those things, right? And that's what, that's what we see sometimes people do on stage. That's what we want to do also. And um, this last, I took some, uh, I'll close with this. I took some people with me to Speak at another church, which was another Foursquare church. You might be in the room. Thanks for having me. I appreciated that. But um, I took some guys from our church with me. I didn't know one of them was a little skeptical when I share prophetic words at the end of service, or when I share words of knowledge. I didn't know that. I thought he was all good with it. I did. He was in a long car ride with me too. I didn't know. And and so, but I brought him into our the prayer room before every service, and he watched. He didn't. He didn't know this before. But we would pray before every service. And I would jot things down. I would just jot little things down. Here's what I sense from the Holy Spirit. And he watched it every time. We did six services in a row. We did a seminar and then, and then their church services. And he saw it every time. And something was happening to him. I didn't even realize this was discipleship. I didn't know that was going to happen. But I had this word of knowledge somebody here has a blood disease and you just got diagnosed last week. Would you please raise your hand? Nobody rose their hand. Well, I looked really dumb, is really what happened. And nobody rose their hand, and everybody looked at me, false prophecy guy, you know? It was a mess. After the service, the associate pastor walks up to me and said, last week, I was diagnosed with a rare blood disease. And the first thought was not, amen, let's pray. The first thought was, why didn't you say something during the service? But God's reminded me again and again, he doesn't care as much about my reputation as he cares about his people. That's what he cares about. And I've been more embarrassed than that before, trust me, in front of a lot more people. And it might happen today, too. But it's a beautiful mess. It's worth it. It's worth it. Share what comes out of prayer. As we share it, people get fired up. Then they want to go into the prayer room. Let them hear the testimony of God. We've got to hear that God is moving and doing something. I'm on the beginning end of this. I can't wait to see what else happens. But we have to be a praying people and a praying church. So let's fire this up as we go back to our churches. Phil, come on. Close me now.
2: Well, I'm really honored to be here. I'm, uh, to, for me to have the chance to share next to Randy and Ben means a lot to me. Um, I genuinely just uh, think it's always good to say. Um, just think we uh, have a remarkably godly, pure-hearted president who I'm just incredibly thankful. Uh, okay. Check one, check two. It died. I'll switch. Okay. It. Just a godly, pure-hearted uh, man who's leading our movement. Uh, who's a man of prayer, and I'm just really thankful. Uh, just any chance I get to, to say. And Ben has been um, uh, a close friend for a long time. We were on staff together uh, in the Northwest before my wife and I moved to Atlanta to plant a church just a little over nine years ago. And Ben has been a, such a huge part of my own life and journey. I grew up as uh, uh, what I would call a very uh, disgruntled charismatic and somebody who believed deeply in the gifts of uh, the Spirit, both through Scripture and uh, experience, and yet had a profound disdain for the Charismatic Church. And God, uh, God walked me through that, and part of how he walked me through that was my friendship with Ben. And so uh, for me to, to tell you that, you know, if there are people worth trusting in these conversations, uh, the, the two you should trust are, are, are sitting here. And we have to be a movement who figures out how to turn back to fathers and mothers. I feel like it's been a lost thing in this season. And uh, we need to be a people who find our way back to those who carry both a calling and an anointing and uh, an experience. And in these two men are more than we can imagine in that. And knowing that uh, I was going to share third and that Randy was going to uh, kind of open uh, with his heart and Ben was going to do all of the heavy lifting uh it allowed me to to in many ways just begin to write what are some uh really specific things that are in my heart for not only the topic of how do we become a praying church uh but even just specifically as i prayed for you and prayed for today what 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 actually would awaken praying churches in us as pastors and leaders and uh and what I want to say in the midst of, of this is that I find that we are not a praying church because we are not praying pastors. And I don't mean that uh, as an easy soundbite or as a derogatory statement or uh, in, a, in a way of just saying, hey, uh, you know, a way, a way to make a point. Uh, What flows into our churches is what's in our hearts. And we all have to swallow the painful pill of that. Which means where we have a lack in prayer culture is a lacking within ourselves. And I have first and foremost had to be somebody who has addressed that and faced that in my own life. And if we are going to actually create cultures of prayer, genuine cultures of intimacy with God, then they will begin because we have an unshakable value within ourselves of an intimacy with God and a prayer life that shows up in the culture we're establishing in our church. And I just want to even say, as we have contended for this, we have uh, uh, wanted to cultivate everything we know how to build a church foundationally centered on intimacy with Jesus. And you can't do that without creating a culture of prayer. Uh, we have seen God do radical things in our church. We're establishing a prayer room. There is a a model that we have kind of adopted that we really find a a lot of joy in connection with, something similar to uh, what happens in Upper Room in Dallas or Church of the City in New York, or different people are demonstrating this model. And uh, we now have four different days a week where we have prayer sets open to our entire community. And on top of prayer services and gatherings within our church and um, some of them are very poorly attended some of them are very well attended but we have established a heart of prayer that is unshakable in our value system and I've watched it change me I've watched it change our staff and I've watched it change our church and it would be foolish of me to act as soul uh, in any way responsible for that this is the heart of what God is doing within our pastoral team and I wouldn't have been able to really cultivate some of the steps that we've taken without it but I want to say that what I believe the spirit of God is trying to do is he's trying to restore his church. And if he's gonna restore his church, he's gotta restore his pastors. And there is my heart have become an awareness of how many of us function, not from a place of obedience of fear of the Lord, not from a place of first love, but from an operating system uh, that ultimately entrusts our success to ourselves and functions jaded with secular values. And what we have to understand about the cultural moment that we live in is that what secularism does to you is it places like a saran wrap around your heart. It, the culture we live in is constructed to destroy belief. And every ounce of discipleship of a secular culture that's within you, and it is within you, and it's within me, robs us from the ability to believe God. Part of the reason why we are not a praying church and we are not a praying people is because we are a secularized church and we are a secularized people. And in that, our ability to even believe God for the things he asks us to believe him for become compromised and jaded and cynical. Most of us pray cynical. Most of us pray helpless. Most of us pray believing God will not move. Most of us come to these places of wondering where God is, not realizing that that isn't uh, just from anywhere. That is the fruit of a secular culture producing in our lives, a longing to believe God and an inability to follow through on it. And until we come to the place where we see how shaped and formed we are, prayer will always be a minimized value. Prayer will always be something we hold as a secondary condition. Prayer will always be something that we're trying to uh, keep at a place because we feel our lack of faithfulness in the midst of our lack of prayerfulness. But rather than actually trying to be a people who turn towards belief in God, I fear we're just simply trying to put together a life that looks godly, rather than actually having the substance of godliness itself. And um, you know, when we when we begin to understand uh, what's what's taking place in our in our hearts and our minds and our culture, the only thing we can do is is begin to turn towards repentance. An intentional formation in Jesus, and so why am I saying this? I'm on sabbatical, so I get to say what I want. I think that's one of the rules of sabbatical. (laughs) Um, uh, um, Because I'm grieved in my heart, and I'm aware. I believe God is shaking His church. I believe that we have normalized things we should have never have normalized. I believe we function more for job security than faithfulness to Jesus. I fear we lead to impress our friends more than we lead to impress the Lord. I fear we believe shame more than we believe adoption. I think we don't fully see all that is happening within us and we don't understand the power of agreement and how often we actually have handed over our secret place to the enemy. I think most of us stand in a prayer life with our anxiety and the demonic activity set against our souls far more than we stand in a quiet place of belief in faith for the work of the Lord. And I know this because I've lived it. My own journey has been one of coming to terms with my heart being in allegiance to so many other lovers besides my one covenant relationship to the Lord and how God wants to faithfully lead us back to him. And I'm telling you, when we come back, to a first love and a pure-hearted faithfulness to Jesus, prayer life is inevitable. Because when you love Jesus without the filter of secularism and without the idolatry that is happening around us, your heart longs to be with the one it loves. You do what you love. Prayer is a result of a life of first love. And I don't believe you don't have first love in you. I believe that within first love is a framework of a secular culture that's trying to destroy that first love, fear that is trying to manage that first love, and a level of trying to protect ourselves rather than a fullness of a fear of the Lord that robs us from the ability of functioning out of that first love. And until we actually let Jesus have a heart posture that would restore and return within us what he intends for us as sons and daughters, I don't believe we're actually going to be able to create prayer cultures. Because ultimately, creating a prayer culture in a church is about creating a prayer culture within yourself. And until we do that, I I think we'll always be attempting practices that are going to have a hard time finding their way. And I, I find that for us as a Foursquare family, one of the things that I deeply love about us is that we are a people who value the balance between the word of God and the spirit of God. Not that there is a balance, but you understand what I mean. We we do not replace one for the other. We believe in a people who are safe. It's part of what marks us. We understand, I grew up in a charismatic church that was not safe. And it took me a long time to distinguish the difference between the person of the Holy Spirit and what wasn't safe about the culture that I grew up within. And in, in this, what happens is we have become so concerned about being safe, we no longer are willing to actually function in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And I I want to challenge us. What makes Foursquare safe isn't that we're timid with the gifts of God. What makes Foursquare safe is that we're so in love with Jesus, we can navigate the gifts of God with grace and clarity and kindness. And I fear that so many people are actually working through their own jadedness and cynicism. And I don't want to be blank that what's robbing them is actually living out the fullness of a Pentecostal life. We are a people of the Spirit, for the Spirit, through the Spirit, by the Spirit. And we have to reclaim this. And it's not to say we need to be like any other movement or like any other, or we need to drop what makes us so unique in the family of God's families which is that we are a people who value honor, safety, balance. We don't force, we don't manipulate, we don't coerce. But I'm just telling you there is a way forward in the Holy Spirit that doesn't operate in falseness because it's restrained. It operates not in falseness because it's fully released into its full godliness. And we have to be a people of the Spirit like this. We have to reclaim being a prophetic people. We have to reclaim being a people of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We cannot be ashamed that we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need to preach the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need to practice the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I say where you feel inner conflict with the convictions of a movement believing in the work of the Spirit, we have to recognize those things are valuable, but they must be worked through. Rather than leading, jaded, cynical, uncertain, always attempting to keep people safe, but we're actually robbing them from the very things that will keep them safe. So we just need to let Jesus, I don't know, I've, I've, I'm trying to go through my notes here um, to give us a few more minutes. We need to come back to a fear of the Lord. We need to recognize how secular we've become. And we need to let first love reclaim its operating system within us as a people. You know this, I'm preaching to the choir Revelation 2, Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus. Which, by the way, you think we would value the ascended Jesus having a commentary on the church more than we do. I'm surprised how little we value the seven letters of Revelation. Jesus ascended at the right hand of the Father, telling you his opinion of the church. We should care more about his opinion of the church. And we find that he is a kind judge, but he is a honest judge of his church. And he tells the church of Ephesus, I I love how you love the truth. I love how you stand for the truth. I love how you test apostles. I love how you find false apostles and prove them. And you say this, this incredible, I mean, when, when you read about what is happening in the church of Ephesus, you would dream about it. I want a church that loves truth like that. I want a church that stands up. After- Ephesus is, the, is at the time John writes this letter, is the is the." king of the churches in the environment. They are the apostolic center and hub of the early church. And he says, but I have this thing against you. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. And if you do not repent, I will take my lampstand away from you. Jesus is basically saying, I don't care what you get right. If you do not operate out of first love, you don't represent me rightly. And I don't know why we don't believe him. I don't know what makes us think we can manage churches, we can lead our lives, and one day we're going to face him face-to-face and go, oh, you really meant that first love thing. Yeah. He really means it. And he will remove lampstands of churches who want to operate out of any other foundation. First love has to be what we reclaim and what we restore. And I believe that God is in a moment in the Church of America where he is pruning and restoring back to these very things in our lives. Let me just kind of end on this. I, uh, I, I I've come to learn as we've tried to cultivate uh, a praying church that, like Ben has said, it's it's not easy. It requires methodology, practices, commitment, prayer meetings that are awful. Uh, hard conversations with staff, reorienting our value systems. But what I've found is that they all happen because prayer is a value that won't let anything close it down. And if we are going to be a people who do that, who who are willing to walk through the complexity of corporate prayer, willing to reclaim the place of prayer. I think we have to come to this one main issue in our lives. Uh, what, part of the value system of the culture we live in is that visibility is success. It's the, it's the outflow of a metamodern cultural belief system. Visibility is success. And I want you to think about what you think is successful. If we're honest, all of us, for the vast majority of us, ache for visibility, ache for visibility. It's because we are discipled by a secular culture and we tend to believe our cultural formation more than we believe Jesus. And what we want to do is we want to take our cultural formation and we want to put a Messiah in it so that we can feel better about what's actually happening in our lives. Isn't it interesting that every young person who I meet who goes, man, I just, I was spending time with the Lord. They, and they say, and then I, I, you know, I had this idea. I saw myself on a stage with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, that's fascinating. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus never speaks about anyone seeing their neighbor on a stage with thousands of people? ...and yet we don't recognize that that is idolatry with Jesus' face on it. I'm not saying God cannot call any young person to greatness... ...but there's a reason you dream on being on a stage with thousands of people... ...because you're an idol. You have an idol. And you love yourself. And we have just normalized that we just think these things... ...we can make idolatry Christian. Let me just tell you, you can't make idolatry Christian. You cannot make the practices of the world reformed into the image of Jesus... And we have to come to terms that we believe visibility is success. Deep in our bones, we long to be visible. We long to be successful. We feel like God is failing us or we are failing ourselves if visibility doesn't come to the level of success we want. And this is why we don't pray. Because prayer will not produce a cultural value of a visible success. But it will produce a value of a kingdom success, which is intimacy and obedience. And so I say this to you, until we are willing to deal with the idols that we've normalized, that we've recaptured and Christianized, until we recognize that this is part of why we pray. Prayer is spiritual formation that actually moves us out of our idolatry into radical obedience with Jesus. And so I want to just encourage you, until we deal with ourselves, our churches will just remain on the sidelines. A praying church starts with a praying pastor. A praying church starts with a pastor who restores him or herself in the fear of the Lord and in first love. And who comes to terms that we have things within us, cultural beliefs and ideologies, that rather than seeing them for what they are, we have allowed them to become in the name of Jesus. And they are robbing us from what uh, God really has for us. I believe our future as a movement, I believe the future of the church Is a pure hearted church. A church of first love who knows how to function in faith. Who walks in the power of the spirit. Who can walk through complex situations with nuance. Who remains a balanced movement. But not balanced because we've safeguarded everything into lack of belief. But a balanced movement because we actually believe the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the fullness of the word of God. And we believe we can do them in great care and love and compassion. And this is where we must start repentance that we long to be visible more than we long to be with Jesus and so I just say wherever any of this (laughs) connects in your heart wake up the prayer life within you recognize that Jesus your substitute is an intercessor and he can teach you how to intercede too and he can reawaken all that comes with the prayer life that must be established within us. And then I'm just telling you, it will spill out into your life, into your church, into your people. And you'll need to get mentors and help and structures and ideas because it is messy and challenging and it is difficult. But I'm just telling you, you wake that up in you, there's no stopping it in your church. And so this is my prayer is that we would allow Jesus to let it wake up in us first and foremost. Yeah.
0: Spin and Phil. Um, As Phil was speaking, did you just feel like you're kind of given language to things I've been sensing. Um, Maybe you're not that articulate or able able to um, say those things in the same way, but in your heart, they just kind of bear witness. And um, Peter Gregg, who's been at the forefront of the 24-7 prayer movement for a long time now, said people really commend him for his life of prayer. And you go, man, you must really love prayer. And he said, no, I don't love prayer. I love Jesus. And because I love Jesus, I pray. You know, and out of that is the foundational wellspring of motivation, why I'm doing what I'm doing, um, because I love Jesus. And if I operate out of that wellspring of desire, then I don't care if I fade in the glory of Jesus being seen and, and not me. So... Um, we're supposed to be, I, I want to make sure we're honoring time. Here was grace at, Oh, we have to one. We even thought we might be letting you out early, but, um, what, what's that? We will be out on time. We did good on time. Oh, we did good on time. Yeah. You did really good. Um, but I want to make sure we pray at the end because I do think something stirred in us. I think you are a prophet to us today, Phil. Yeah. I think you spoke as a prophet to us and I, and I, I feel that we need to respond to that. But I'm just wondering, if you truly have a question, um, I I know that sounds hard because I know we all are percolating with thoughts and ideas and, um, you know, we want to, we got things to share. But if you have a question, (laughs) would you be willing to uh, uh, just bring it from where you're at? We'll try to get to you with a mic here and then... um, uh, I don't know if that's working or not, but you can try it. And we'll just try to interact together around that. So does anybody on anything that that we shared? Way in that corner. You can belt it out if you want to. Awesome job, you guys. Thank you so much. That was so good. Uh, Could you share some more? uh, Share
2: something with the team, share some more. Hi, thank you. Some more practicals of how to do this, how to get it implemented. And I know, obviously, it starts with us first. But could you just share some more of the methodology, some of the systems, the, the practicals
1: that we could kind of glean from your experience? Because I'm sure you tried some things that didn't work and uh, some things that have worked. So if you could share some more of that, that'd be great.
2: Um, I would say uh, some of the very practical things was uh, Stuart making prayer about half of our staff meeting. Uh, and the repetition of that for years uh, just has slow kind of shape. Um, we started one, we, again, I would say practically finding a model that you feel like is genuine and sincere to you and is something you can type after. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel. And for us, when, when I was kind of starting to become aware of what a church in Dallas called Upper Room is doing, it really captured my heart. It's a mix of prayer and worship, both led by a leader up front and having space for congregants to be a part of it. And it, it kind of has different methods you can do within it. But it was something I felt like that feels like us. We can lead that. We can do that. And we just started with one prayer gathering a week, Wednesday mornings, um, before people went into work at 730 a.m. And it's about, it was about 45 to 55 minutes long. And it's a, we have a worship leader, and we have a leader up front that are leading the time. And, they, and a, we have different times where people that are, are, sometimes we're worshiping, sometimes we're all praying together. Sometimes we have an open mic where people are allowed to come and pray. And what we did is we just lived there until it got normal. And then we added a second, and then we added a third, and then we've started to build. And the dream in our heart is getting to the point where we would have morning, morning afternoon, and evening prayer seven days a week. And we just are okay that that might take us 10 years, or we're just going to keep moving forward in that direction. And um, and then we just had, to, practically, we just had to not be discouraged when three people were at a prayer gathering. And you just are going uh, to, there, there are days like that. And part of it, too, is we started to require, uh, started to make it a value system on our staff. Uh, staff have to attend at least one prayer gathering a week, And um, and if that's, Something that isn't in your heart were the wrong church for you. Um, And just beginning to help people understand that. And so I would say practically, it was just about taking a step at a time for us finding a model that we really valued or, or could see ourselves in doing easily. And I think this is just taking away the sense of shame or arrogance. I just think there's so many prayer models that are beautiful. Let's just find one that Feels like we have some affinity with, affinity with, and just start building it. So practically, uh, that's just what we started to do um, when we when we got to those practical next steps. If, if that's helpful, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's easy to have worship and prayer nights and spend ninety percent of it worshiping and ten percent prayer, and they're called worship and prayer nights. And so we decided that we were going to start corporately two hours, two hour prayer meetings. Uh, but we started with them once a month. That's how we started, and we built on out from there. But we started with a couple of songs of worship. Um, we changed up the room a little bit to say we this isn't going to be really super directed. We're not trying to script this out. We're not going to, but we made room for a lot of different aspects of the prayer. So our little our liturgy around it, if you would, is we'd come together, and we would worship. Um, usually after a few songs i would give us some focus from the word uh in terms of prayer and i would we would go 20 minutes just spread out all over the sanctuary and people would walk people would kneel people would stand people would lay on the stage i mean just and we said we're just going to cover this sanctuary um in prayer for our gatherings that are going to come up in the weekend and And then we would bring us to a place after about 20 minutes where we would bring us all jammed towards the front and people would be all down the aisles. But I made everybody get out of their seats and I made them move and get uncomfortable and all come down together. And for us in these meetings, there'd be anywhere from 400 to 800 people at a time at these. And, And I would kneel on the stage and I had about three dozen people who I trusted and I would just tell them, you come ready because I'm going to hand you the mic, or you just, you just be ready, and we would just press in in worship, usually like an intimate song of worship, you know, it's your breath, you know, in our lungs, we wanted more songs like that, but we always defaulted to that one a lot, and, um, but we would just, we would, we would just sit in the pocket of that, we would go through the uncomfortableness of waiting on the Lord, and sometimes having to check out of order, kind of glossolalia, and, uh but, Then I would have us like praying the spirit together. Then let's shout together. Let's just wait. And we would begin to press in and the Holy Spirit's leading us. It seems like we're praying for broken families and broken marriages. And we just kind of stayed there, you know, and it took a long time to exercise those kind of muscles together corporately in prayer where after about four years of that, we got really good at what does it mean to lift our voices as one and cry out to God together as the church. I mean, just a roar of lifting our voices. And what does it mean to sit in stunned silence in the holiness and the presence of God is among us and to discern and how to flow in that took a long time. sometimes we involved, hey, if you need personal prayer, but we made it more about us coming together in intercession before Jesus together, and not just to make it this forced thing. And some some evenings, we were done, and I just crawled to my office. I just was tapped. It was like, and then there were some evenings where it was just like two hours was over already, but we always started on time, and we ended on time, just two hours, you know, just, and we put a lot of Different aspects and ways that we could pray, but we just wanted to learn how to pray together. Because um, we have people pray for us, um, we do good with the prayer circles. But what does it mean to be the church, just on our faces, on our knees, calling on the name of the Lord together? That took, that took a long time. It was, but we stayed at it, and we've had some awkward things. We've had demonic manifestations. <laughs> you know, we had all kinds of stuff uh, that. In hindsight, now, you know, it was quite fun. In the moment, it was like, okay. It's like, you know, because everybody, this is what happens when a demon manifestation happens. Everybody goes like this. This, look at you. Just like. <laughs> but now we got people, they just run and lay hands on them. So, another question? There's a mic fast approaching you.
2: Hey, Dave.
1: What do you do when you get phone calls at 3.30 in the morning emergency urgent calls and you've already put in a 25-hour day and the church has a reputation of being the fastest growing church in town and you don't have time to pray so you look for a shade tree off the side of the road where it's quiet nobody can see you? And you try to do it there, but you will not get something else done if you take the time to pray. That's a good long question.
0: I don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you let me know when you figure it out? Cause yeah, that, 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 that. Sounds like you need some help, some team. Yeah. Wow. Interns. My heart goes out for you. Yeah, yeah,
2: interns. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I think you're, you know, in in the way you phrased the question, are speaking to the exasperated way we feel. Uh, Yeah, no problem. I'll I'll hold it a little closer. I think what I would say in all of our situations that feel like if I pray, something is going to drop, something is going to drop. And I think for me, coming to terms, that uh, I'm tired of... Uh, in the name of not letting people down, not not living in union with the Lord, and I'd rather err on union with Him uh, than anything else. And I've found that um, there, He has taught me a lot about trusting Him with things that feel really important that I can't do uh, for not not for a not for a foolish amount of time with Him. It's not like I'm praying eight hours a day, and I'm like, well, sorry, church. I guess, you know, you're going to just have to trust Jesus as your pastor. Um, but for me to have an unshakable value of intimacy with God, that there are going to be things I can't do, and it's painful. I honor you in, in the pain of it because there are good things. Uh, and so I just would say, but I've had to come to terms that I will let things down, and I will let people down, and I'm okay with that. Uh, it took a while, though.
1: Yeah, I just had a quick thought while he was talking about, um, I, I don't know what's underneath the question, but um, I think we can't do it all. And so we don't want to be a praying church. I don't just want to be a praying person or pastor. And so we have a lot of people that need to take on things that we can't get to. And so sometimes we just got to delegate. Jethro had to tell Moses, what you're doing is not good. So sometimes we need someone to come to us and say, the way you're doing this is not good. You can only handle so much. And so it might be a season of delegation needing to put people in charge of things and route them to another phone number. You know, amen.
0: So Acts chapter six, church was growing. Ministry was exploding, problems arising. They gave away ministry, and this is what the apostles said. We must not neglect we must give our full attention to the ministry of the prayer and prayer in the word. So the priority of those two things, everything else became secondary to that. So um, we don't live by urgency. We live by priority. And we are the ones who establish those priorities. So that means saying yes to this means I'm saying no to something else. And and it's hard. There's not a day I went home where I didn't feel like there were ten balls dropping to the ground, you know. But what am I saying yes to That's the priority, um, not the urgency. So
1: thank you you too. Um, How would you um thank you by the way? How would you encourage a pastor who maybe in the past, um in the for the sake of making everyone safe, has opted for more control? and now they want to help uh, the people under them to step into the messy and maybe out of control and maybe it gets messy, Um, how would you encourage them to take that step, that risk, to go for it? I mean, you're talking about somebody who's been through it before and it wasn't good and so reactivating something but doing it in a better way, right? You know, I think a lot of it is honest conversation and one of the things that I tell people or pastors even, and I... I used to go around to a lot of churches before I took on uh, the role that I'm in now. And that is this, is that um, if we've gone through abuse and misuse of the gifts and ministry and the power of the Spirit, then we are the perfect people to not do it the wrong way. And so maturity can be and should be born Really, in the contrast of what is wrong, it shouldn't be us hibernating. And so I I say that in a nice diplomatic way. I always try to encourage people well, you're the perfect person to not do it the wrong way. And isn't it awesome that God's going to trust you with a safer methodology so that people can do what the Bible says and not have to go through the damage that you went through? See, that's just sort of a revelation that has to occur. So we've got to pray for our leaders because. In my role now, I get a lot of wacky words sometimes, and I just say, "Hey, thank you for trying." You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it takes a lot of courage. You know, like I mean, I've been humiliated in front of like a lot more people than are here today, and so I'm I've been on the other end of this. I know exactly what it feels like to to um, to miss it. I know I know all of that. I know the pain of both sides, but now I also know the pain of being the lead pastor. Um, but I just think we have to believe that risks are worth it. And so helping people understand risk and reward, the rewards are greater than the risks if if we do it the right way. And so getting them the right resource, having the right coach, being around the right people. But if somebody just doesn't want to do it, um, praying that, that whatever that hold is it lifts because to be honest with you, Um, Until that lifts, a person won't pursue, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. The other thing is, who is doing it well? You know, today people have a lot of bad things to say about Bethel and some of these other movements. Um, Whether you like them or not, I don't don't actually care. But find some in between then. You know, we've got to find these, like, better mediums for people that are trying to activate rather than just... um, get to where people are you know that's kind of discouraging too you can't start like way down the road sometimes we're real guilty of trying to mentor people where we are and not where we started that's not good discipleship Um, when i'm talking to older pastors and they talk about how easy it is right now i'm like well what was it like when you were 40 i'm 42 (laughs) you know what i'm saying i'm not 80 i don't know what it's like to go through that 30 years so like it would be nice to visit back where you were and help me with what you had to go through. And and my point with that is that sometimes we've got to find better models that fit people in their gift mix. Because some people in this room are more prophetic, and so you you can go with those models that are out there well-known. But if you're more pastoral, you probably need to find somebody that's had to go through all of that pain and process of really being heavy on the pastoral unapologetically, but including the prophetic or whatever you know, spiritual, the revelatory gifts of the spirit. Um, finding the right model is, re- is really important. And so sp- sp- spreading out a little bit to get that. Some people say, I don't know who those people are. They're out there. Trust me. They're out there. You can find them in Foursquare. And if you, I've got some names, you know, there's some people out there. You know, this guy, did you have something to say? No, real quick. There you go.
2: I, I would just say from somebody who feels like that's part of my own story, one of the most helpful things uh, was simply, uh, well, there's the, there's the whole thing of just recognizing how, how easy it was for me to operate in any form of fear of man and, and, and coming to terms with it and actually dealing with that. That was the whole side of it uh, that I'm not projecting, but that's a true answer. The other side of it was just going, okay, I just know m- my own tendencies, and so I have, I have to build clarity because what will make me feel bad is if I give somebody permission and they did it and they did it poorly— and then I go back and I correct them and I didn't they didn't think correction was going to come all I know myself to know that's a situation I don't want to be in right and so it was about going hey as we move forward in I just want you to know here are the guardrails um I I want you to know I am going to give you feedback on every prophetic word that is given and and encourage you in the midst of it. And it's my job to tell you if it was a, a little bit off. And if you don't want me to engage with you in that way, then don't speak publicly. Um, I'm going to uh, have, I'm going to come and uh, if, if, there's, if there's something that I, I think's in you, I'm going to encourage you to walk in it. We're going to, if, we if you need discipleship there. It was about clarifying the terms so that when help correction or discipleship needed to be implemented... It was already expressed. It was already agreed to. It was already understood. So nobody felt like I was coming behind them and hurting them. And I didn't feel like I was putting myself in a situation I didn't want to be in. Uh, which, Because I just recognize people get very sensitive around when, when, when you take a risk in the name of the Holy Spirit. And, you, and then you feel like a, a, a father or mother figure comes to you and goes, hey, that wasn't great. Um, it can be hurtful for people. But we need that. But I find that what we need to do is just clarify, this is part of it. This is part of it. And I'm just going to come and I'm going to walk with you in that. And so whatever the case may be, I just think it's about, as we empower our team, letting them know that it is, we're, we're going to, we're going to just help them grow and disciple them in this. And part of that is, is, is it is our job to to keep things in alignment with the Spirit and biblically. And To to not view feedback as a negative, it's part of the discipleship process. I think where we create that as normal, it takes away a lot of the fear and pain of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and lastly, um, good training brings good ministry. One of the reasons we have bad examples of spiritual gifts is because we don't invest enough training into into those things as we do into preaching. You know, you only put usually the better preachers on the stage— but for some reason we let anybody come up and share a word and then we shut it down because it sounds horrible. (laughs) Well, then my question is why do we invest so much training into preaching and then put the the better preachers up because that makes more sense the more people you have, but then we sort of let any, any person with very little training. And then we go, see, that's what we get every time. No, you get what you train for, you know? And so we, so maybe we got to start small. You know, maybe we got to start small. And we start, pastors start modeling it themselves. And then you invite a couple other trusted people. They have a training you have to go through. If you don't go through this training, you don't share on the stage ever. John Wimber used to teach that. I mean, people forget that they thought he was, they were just crazy. You had to go through his training. And then only the best gifted prophetic people ever touched the stage. Everybody else was small groups. I think that was a good model. I really think that that's a better way to do it. And so, amen.
0: Well, I hope uh, this was encouraging and, and stimulating for us um, to be uh, continual in our quest to be men and women of prayer. And I just wonder if we could just, just hold our hands out uh, before us. And Phil, would you send us out the door praying over us? Um, because we do know and we do believe that it starts with us. That's also an easy point of condemnation in our own life versus, and we want to walk out of here with, really, we heard a word from the Lord for us. And let's, let's
2: go live in the light of that. Yeah. Um, Father, I just, um, I pray blessing, not only just over our movement, but specifically for everyone here. And God, I, I just uh, recognize in my own life, um, I just have spent a lot of years Believing uh, the lies of the enemy, the voice of shame, the voice of fear in ways I didn't always know I was doing. And God, I just thank you that I don't have to believe them (laughs) and I can believe you. And I really pray for anyone here, Lord, in ways understood and in ways functioning underneath the surface where we have come into agreement with condemnation, accusation, shame and fear that by the power of your spirit, you would reveal these things, that we could walk in our new created identity, that we could experience the freedom of adopted love, and that you would awaken this heart of prayer. Lord, I'm asking that we just come in humility. We can't always see rightly, so we just humble ourselves in front of you and say, Jesus, wherever there are things happening, whether it's patterns, whether it's dysfunction, whether it's bad theology, whether it's lies, whatever it may be, God, that is robbing us from a full life of intimacy with you, would you just in your kindness come and reveal them, that we could deal with them, and Lord, just have what you've promised us, just a life uh, in you, by you, through you, for you, Lord, that we get to abide in your presence, we get to walk in your power, and we get to experience your grace, and God, that you would just awaken that first love in us again. And that that would come into a life of prayer that would spill out into our churches. Lord, we ask that the day would come when the church of the world would say, we need to know how to pray again. Where is the closest four-square church? Lord, I'm asking that you would reawaken and reignite. That we would be a movement of prayer. A people of prayer. Pastors of prayer. And that Jesus, you would be the one who leads the way because you love us. You don't condemn us. You want to free us and walk with us and rescue us. So we just say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: God bless you. You're free to go.